0: Uh, there are many things you should know about me. Normally, when I have the chance to preach, I like to tell you about how much I love baseball. Uh, this morning, I want to tell you about something else that I love dearly, and that is Chick-fil-A. I know that, yes, I can, I can hear from you that uh, you are with me on this, as good Baptists should be. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to talk about Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. They are closed on Sunday. That's a hard thing. This is a hardship, and we'll get through it together. Like I said, I've always known that I was a loyal fan of Chick fil A. My wife will tell you, anytime we eat Chick fil A, uh, I will almost always remind her that I could eat Chick fil A three meals a day, seven days a week for the rest of my life, which wouldn't be very long if that was my uh, diet, but I would die a happy man. Um, uh, I I know that I'm a loyal fan. I've always known that I was a loyal fan, Um, but I didn't realize how loyal until the other day when I took uh, our youth to play laser tag in Birmingham see the the plan was we were going to drive all the way out to Leeds uh, to visit Bucky's. this very impressive I, I have seen it, not with the youth as you'll find out, but I have seen it, and it is a very impressive gas station. you know I understand that it's a gift to us from Texas, wanted to go get my pew pew on um, but didn't wasn't, wasn't able we weren't quite able to to make it because you know once we got going, once we kind of got on the road, I realized that in the time it was going to take us to get all the way out to Leeds to visit this gas station to end all gas stations, that, uh, and, and then come all the way back to Hoover where we were playing laser tag, that we just weren't going to have enough time to play laser tag, alright? There there's another thing that I love, you need to know about me, I love baseball, I love Chick-fil-A, and I love laser tag, alright? And I wanted to make sure we had unlimited laser tag. I wanted enough time to shoot some students with a little laser gun, right? Like, it was going to be a good time. So as we're getting ready to, to kind of go down the road, we're heading towards Leeds and realize, all right, this, we're just not going to make it, I ask them, ask our students, like, will you be okay if we skip Bucky's and just stop at a Chick-fil-A on the way? Will that be okay with you? Uh, and Harry Smalley says this, Honestly, I thought it was kind of weird that we weren't going to Chick-fil-A, because when do you ever plan something and you don't take us to Chick-fil-A? And I realized, that's true. If I'm on a road trip, especially if it's a church outing, you best believe I am going to find a Chick-fil-A. I will go out of my way, well out of my way to find a Chick-fil-A. You can ask people who went to Portland in 2019 that we will find a -A. (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I'm not stopping for that Philistine chicken at McDonald's. I don't want it. I am devoted to Chick-fil-A to the point where it actually changes how I approach a road trip. It it makes a very real difference in where and when I am going to to stop the car. Now, I want to remind us of where we've been in the Psalms so far. And we looked at 20 last summer. Uh, We're well into our way of covering another ten this summer. Uh, You might remember that the Psalms are divided into five books. We're in the middle of book one. And so I think it's uh, very important for us to think back on Psalm one and Psalm two, as these are incredibly important for us in understanding the rest of the Psalms, particularly book one, but the rest of the Psalms. These chart a course for us. I want you to consider what we read when we were in Psalm 1. There we find the descriptions of two different kinds of people. There's the blessed man and the wicked man. We're told that the blessed man delights in what? The law of God. And he meditates on it day and night. But the wicked aren't like that. And we read that they will not stand in the day of judgment question is, why? Well, it's because the Lord knows the way of both the righteous and the wicked. We then see in Psalm 2 that the wicked rage and plot against the Lord and His anointed King. They come together and they plot as to how to overthrow the rule of God. They want to be free from it. They want to be out from under it because they want authority for themselves. But the Lord just laughs at them. We read that they will suffer his wrath for their rebellion against him. But we also read in Psalm 2 that he establishes his righteous king. So what we need to see is that the Psalms are about the coming of God's kingdom. They're pointing us to that. You remember Michael has said over and over as we've been working through the Psalms that the king is the tip of of the spear of God's kingdom being thrust into the world. Initially, this is David. Ultimately, this is Jesus. This king, this king is serving under the authority of God and is God's instrument to establish his kingdom. Yet from that point forward, from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, things have been up and down. There are times when the Psalms have expressed great confidence in God. They've been declarations of praise, thanking God for saving the king. There have been, there's been praise that, uh, to God for being merciful, for being just, and for defeating uh, his enemies and the enemies of the king. But also, there's also been cries for help, cries of anguish. There are psalms that are crying out for help because the enemies have grown. They seem to be wielding great influence and power, and they are vicious. There have been uh, times when the enemies have almost seemed to have the, the upper hand. I mean, we even saw just a few weeks ago, Psalm 22, the gut-wrenching cry, My God, my God, God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, even in that psalm, the psalmist is still crying out to God, still evidencing the confidence that they have in God and in God alone. And so then the question I think that we ought to ask is, Why? Why is that the case? And I would say that it's because all of these psalms are pointing us back to the reality that God is king over all. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Psalm 24 says this. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. So there's three divisions in this psalm, and the first section I break down this way. Uh, The Lord is king and alone worthy of worship. Now, when we look to this psalm, we we need to understand what we're reading here is a processional. The idea is that the people have gathered up together to go up to the house of God. But but on the way, or or maybe it's it's as the procession is getting going, or just before they get started, there's a reminder. Look again at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas." and established it upon the rivers. There is a reminder of who it is they are going to worship. This cry rings out, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If that's not clear enough for you, the NIV makes it really clear. It says, And everything in it. The point is, you are going before the king. Not David. He's probably leading the processional. You're going before the king above every king, the one who is king over all creation, to whom everything belongs. And that includes every man, every woman, and every child, because as it says, the earth is the Lord's, the world, and those who dwell therein. So when we're reading verses 1 and 2, hopefully you catch the echo of the creation account from Genesis. Here we read that he founded the earth upon the seas and the rivers. So I think what this should call to mind for us is Genesis 1 verse 2, where we read that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was watery chaos, but the Lord speaks And with just his word, he tames it all. We see that in Genesis 1, verse 9, where it says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it just happens. Why is that? Because the king has spoken. The king of the universe. We read in verse 10, He called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas, and He saw that it was good. And this pattern continues throughout Genesis 1. The Lord declares what will be, and then He orders it. That is to say, He assigns to it its function He tells what he creates with his own word, what it is then going to do and to be. For example, he says to the sun, you will rule the day. And then to the moon, the lesser light, you will rule the night. What does all this mean? It means that everything that exists does so by his sovereign decree and for his sovereign purposes. It means that the earth and the fullness thereof owes its allegiance to Him. More specifically, those who dwell therein, humanity, owe their allegiance to Him. He alone is worthy of worship, He alone is worthy of devotion. He alone is king, and he rules over all that he has made. You see this come to bear on the Psalms over and over again. Psalm 8, verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, verse 1 the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 89, verse 12, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. But that's not, it's not just that creation reveals that there is an almighty God worthy of worship. He has also revealed who he is. Who is it that is worthy of worship? Consider Moses' interaction with the Lord at Mount Sinai. You might be thinking of Moses at the burning bush where the Lord says, I am who I am. But let's jump further ahead to where the Lord is meeting with Moses on Sinai. Moses asked for the Lord, Please, Lord, show me your glory. But the Lord says to him that he would not show him his face, because no man could look on his face and live. In fact, the nation of Israel and their livestock, no one but Moses could even touch the mountain. He had Moses warn them that if they even touched the edge of the mountain, they would die. He's infinitely more pure and holy than I think we can wrap our minds around. And in his holiness, he's revealed that he will not suffer the wickedness of man. Think of the flood. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of the wilderness wandering where an entire generation of faithless Israelites died off for their failure to trust in him, because they would not trust him. They would rather believe the lies of faithless spies. Think of Moses, who was not allowed to enter the land because he did not uphold the Lord as holy before the people. The king is holy, and the king is righteous. But when Moses asks him to show him his glory... He didn't just tell him no. He said he would make his goodness pass before him and would proclaim his name to him. This happens in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which read, "...the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin." but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Just as he is holy and righteous, he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Think of his grace and his patience towards Abraham, who waffled on trusting the Lord, over and over again. Think of his grace and his patience towards Israel, providing for them every step of the way, even as they wandered in the wilderness. Think of his mercy in delivering them from the enemies that he sent against them for their sins against him. Think of his kindness to them, giving them a good king in David, even after they rejected him as king over them. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This isn't some cheap platitude. This is a reminder to the gathered assembly of just who it is that they are preparing to come before. It's a declaration of praise, most certainly. But I hope that we sense the, the, the warning as well. Do you think that you're just coming before some cosmic grandfather, someone who's just going to be happy that you showed up? Think again. You're going to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over you and the only one to whom you owe allegiance. This is who we have gathered to worship this morning as we do every Lord's Day. But do we ever stop and consider who it is that we are coming to worship? If you believe what Psalm 24 says about God, shouldn't we take some time to reflect on who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word? It's really easy for me to to walk into this room, actually come running into this room because I'm long-winded in youth building block, and come running into the room without taking the time to reflect on these glorious truths. But it it doesn't have to be that way. We would be wise to begin warming our affections towards God before we ever arrive. And, And this can begin on Saturday night, Think about the role that family worship can play in this. It's not just something to be done to say that you've done it. You can gather with your family, or perhaps gather with other members of the church to read the preaching passage for the next day, to sing the songs that we are going to be singing together. Tom posts them on the website every week. The all, to pray. Believe it or not, our bedtime routine can be part of this. We can be intentional about going to bed at a reasonable time so that we are well-rested. That pays dividends the next morning because it makes it easier to rise early, to read the Scriptures, and to pray ahead of the service. This is all to get our thoughts turned towards God as we prepare to gather with His people. begs the question of what we're consuming first thing in the morning on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about your Wheaties. Do you go straight for the television or your phone? Are you too busy getting riled up over the news or dulling your mind with mindless scrolling? Consider instead, listen to doctrinally rich music or read faithful authors who will point you to the glories of Christ. There's are just some ideas. I'm sure that there are other things you could do that I would love to learn from some of you. Just ideas. But I think they're worth taking the time to think over. Why? Because He is worthy of worship. It's good to remind ourselves of that before we gather. I have said that this psalm depicts a procession of God's people on their way to worship Him. I say that based on what we see in verse 3. Uh, the question that gets asked, you have these, these very short, very concise, but very beautiful statements about the glory of God and who it is, that is who the procession is, is moving towards to go and worship. But then someone asks a question. And in these questions, they mention uh, ascending the hill of the Lord and His holy place. We've seen in in a couple of different places in the Psalms already uh, the concept of God's presence being uniquely present on the hill. I I mentioned Psalm 2 earlier. Back in Psalm 2, verse 6, we read that he sets his king on Zion, his holy hill. The Lord answers David in Psalm 3, verse 4 from his holy hill. I just made reference to Moses and Israel meeting with the Lord at Sinai as well, there the presence of the Lord was uniquely present. He descended on the mount to meet with Moses and the people. But it's not just about the holy hill. Uh, we also see this, this reference to the holy place. It's not just about the holy hill, it's the place where the Lord's presence was uniquely present among the people. At Sinai, the Lord gave instruction to build the tabernacle which his glory descended upon and filled when it was done, which ties for us the concept in, in verse 3, it ties the concept together of, God, uh, of the presence of God on the mountain. It ties it together with the holy place. Psalm 68, verse 17 actually states this explicitly, saying, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So the idea being communicated is that this procession is on its way up to where the Lord's presence is uniquely present. Based on who we've been reminded that that God is, like I mentioned, this, this question rings out. Who can approach Him? And can't you imagine someone, maybe a young Israelite who knows, but someone hearing these things about who it is that, that they're going up to, and the weight of all of that just hitting them dead in their tracks and stopping them and making them go, "Who can go up there? If that's who he is, who can go?" And that leads to the second thing we see, which is that the Lord's people are wholly devoted to their king. So the question is posed, and the answer comes back, that it is those with clean hands and pure hearts that may come into God's presence. Uh, Said maybe a little differently, those and only those who are morally upright can approach Him. And so this is speaking to both inward and outward purity. You have hands which are uh, referencing actions that are pure Pure hearts speaking to motivations that are pure and pleasing to God. You, you You might could say it this way. Motivations that are Godward in their orientation, that are directed at that which is worship of and service to Him. Motivations that are Godward in their orientation, that are directed at that which is worship of and service to Him. But the clean hands and pure hearts that God desires uh, are are further defined. We read that the one uh, who does not lift up their soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully, they may come up. They have clean hands and pure hearts. So here David is talking about one who does not engage in worship of false gods, worships Worship of that which is not God, the one true God. He's actually going to define what he means by lift up uh, in the psalm that Michael will preach from next week, Psalm 25. There in verses 1 and 2, he says to the Lord, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. So here we understand one who is morally upright is one whose trust is solely in the Lord. They do not give themselves in worship to what is false. They don't turn to another for safety and security. We also read that they don't swear falsely. And now I'll tell you that I went back and forth on this. I went back and forth on whether this means that they just simply don't make false promises. They just don't tell lies. And I don't think that's an unreasonable conclusion. It, if nothing else, it doesn't mean less than that. But I was persuaded by the context that there's a little bit more here that's intended. Remember, we said this is about a procession that's on its way up to worship the Lord. What is being stated here is in response to the question of who can approach the Lord in worship. And so what we just talked about, the line above, is about not entrusting yourself to idols. That—that uh, That is... Do not worship another. Later, in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see that the Lord is returning as a conquering king. He returns from defeating his enemies, those who tried to claim his authority for themselves. That is, claimed the right to be worshiped, a right which is his alone as king of all creation. So then I think here that the idea of swearing deceitfully seems to imply a pledge by that which is false. I would say maybe maybe think of it this way. If I pledge to you by this pulpit that I will be done by 11:30, which is not going to happen, what I'm saying to you is that this pulpit will adjudicate, it's going to try the case, it's going to work out the particulars of the case, between you and I, when I am inevitably not done at 1130. What am I doing there? I'm ascribing to this very nice, but still very much block of wood, an authority that it does not have, because it is nothing more than a, it's a a block of wood. So then, take an Israelite. If they were to swear by Baal, who are they suggesting has the authority to deal with them if they don't uphold their word? Baal. What's that? It's an act of of allegiance to that which is false. It's an act of trust in that which is false, that which has no authority. So what does all this mean? It means that the one who can go up and be in the presence of God is the one who is wholly devoted to God. The morally upright trust in Him, the King of creation, and they trust in Him alone. They recognize Him as the King with no rivals. We then see in verse 5 that these are blessed by God and declared righteous by Him. That is, they're declared to be in the right with Him. This is the language of justification by virtue of their clean hands and pure hearts, their being wholly devoted to him, their trust in him, they are right with him. And we read that this is true of those who seek him. There's the problem, right? Which one of us can say that we're wholly devoted to him? That we trust him completely? Maybe, maybe think about it this way. Have you ever complained? We all have. We complain about our jobs. We complain about our spouse or lack thereof. We complain about our kids. We complain about our homes. We complain about our sicknesses. We complain about mean bosses. We complain about difficult neighbors. We complain about floods. We complain about friendships gone bad. We complain a lot. But where does everything that comes our way come from? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when we grumble and complain, we're failing to acknowledge the Lord's kindness and His provision to us, and we act like pagans. On that basis alone, we have to acknowledge that we don't have clean hands or pure hearts. And that's not even to mention our greed, our anger, our selfishness, our adultery, our lies, our gossip, so on. So then coming back to verse 3, if we're in the procession to go up to the Lord and then we come to this realization, it hits a square in the eyes of who it is that we're going up to worship, where does that leave us? Probably standing by the side of the road. There's no way we can enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God on the basis of our own merit because we are not wholly devoted to Him. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is one who was and who is wholly devoted to him, Jesus our Lord, of whom Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6 and 8, though he was in the form of God, he, Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Perhaps you think, too, to the Garden of Gethsemane where he cried out, not as I will, but as you will. He alone was pure. He alone deserved all the blessing of covenant faithfulness but instead became a curse for us. He was without sin, but he became sin for us. He bore the sins of all who come to him in repentance and faith. The sins of his people were nailed to the cross with him. In him, they have fully and finally been dealt with. His people receive from Him a righteousness that is not their own, by which we are covered, and under which and in which we have access to God. It is in Him that we are able to draw near to the throne of grace, because He brings us near. What allows the person in Psalm 24 to go up to the Lord is their trust in. They're not justified by their works. That's not how it works, and it's never been how it works. They're justified on the basis of their trust in God. Salvation is and always has been by faith alone. We're going to see this play itself out in Psalm 25. Remember, there David says that to lift up his soul to the Lord is to trust wholly in the Lord. Well, in Psalm 25, David is not going to claim that he is perfectly upright. Instead, he's going to say it's the Lord who is upright. And on the basis of the Lord's love and goodness, he's going to call on the Lord to forgive his sins. This is what the person in the procession is banking on. I trust the Lord. My faith is in Him alone. So it is with us, with those of us who are in Christ On the basis of His righteousness, which by faith is now credited to us, to me, we may go up and worship the King of all creation. That's good news. Because despite all our faithlessness, we gain access to God by His mercy to us in Christ Jesus. And because we also see, this is the third thing, that the Lord does not tolerate challengers to His kingship. So this this psalm, it moves from stating that you have this procession who is going to worship, then it moves to who it is that can go and worship, who it is that is going to be worshipped, then who it is who can go up and worship. And last, we see what happens to those who seek to claim the Lord's place. In the last stanza, the king of all creation comes to meet with the procession of his People. Mark Futato described it as the procession of God coming to meet the procession of His people. The question then becomes, well, what is this glorious king like? That's the question that is asked. And the answer that comes back is that he is a conquering king. He is a warrior who does not tolerate those who lay claim to His throne Verse 8 presents the image of a conquering king returning from battle. In fact, if you look at this, you might think, or you probably have a little note there that connects this to Exodus 15, 3, which says that the Lord, He is a man of war. If you're familiar with Exodus 15, then you know that this is Israel uh, singing to commemorate the Lord's victory over Pharaoh and over Egypt. This is immediately after the waters have come back and crushed Pharaoh and his army drowning them in the sea. But that victory signified much more than just the Lord bringing his people out of slavery. If you remember, Pharaoh was viewed and worshipped as the Son of God. He claimed to be divine, and so the Lord's conquering over him was a declaration to Israel that he alone is God, not Pharaoh. In fact, that's what's happening throughout the plagues that he sent to Egypt. He is showing his people over and over that he alone is God and there is no other. The plagues were a defeat of the gods of Egypt. This is a sidebar, Michael talked about this on several Wednesday nights back in March and April of, of 2019. I would encourage you, look up that podcast. It's on our website. Uh, under the heading of Making Promises, that series, all the way down under the title, of The Exodus. Look those up. They're very good and very, very helpful. But, coming back to this, th- th- this was to be seen as God not only rescuing His people, but defeating false gods becomes clear when the spies encounter Rahab at Jericho. Do you remember what she told them? She tells the spies that the Lord's defeat of Egypt, as well as other kings along the way, shows that, in her, in her words, the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What she's saying there the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The declaration of verses 7 through 10 is that God is king and He will not tolerate challengers to His throne. We read He is the Lord of hosts. That is, He commands the armies of heaven. None can stand against Him. So to the procession that is coming up to meet Him and worship, this should be of supreme comfort. He alone is God, and there is none who can contend with Him. They are going up to worship the one true God. Therefore, He alone is worthy of worship, worship, which is to say that He alone is worthy to have and that he will have a people who are wholly devoted to him. Of course, that's really bad news for anyone who has set themselves against him, which is all of us, apart from his grace and mercy that comes through repentance and faith in Christ. We're all born under the curse of the fall. Paul tells us that by nature we are enemies of God and children of wrath. By nature, we deserve his righteous judgment. But thankfully, rather than first coming as a warrior king, Christ rode into Jerusalem as a humble king. He didn't come for blood, he came to shed his own blood, to reconcile those outside the kingdom with the king of glory. Therefore, he is worthy of a people who are wholly devoted to him. He is the conquering king who defeated his enemies, not with a sword, but with a cross. And his empty tomb is the proof of his victory. And in this victory, he makes all who come to him in faith right with God once and for all. But being made right with God through Christ Actually produces something in those who repent and believe. Paul tells us this in Romans 8:29, that those who are made right with God are conformed into the image of his son. Not they might be. They are. That is, we are growing into the likeness of the Son, who, as we have seen, is wholly devoted to the Father. What's that mean? As he is. So we will be. So his people will be. This means that devotion to the Lord, it actually changes what I do. And that's not true in just some parts of my life, but in every sphere of my life. That's because being wholly devoted to God is is bringing every part, every facet, every sphere of my life under the authority of his word. That doesn't just mean doing things differently. But that is part of it. You know, I mentioned earlier complaining. It's more than, okay, so I'm a complainer. Well, I guess I should just stop complaining. It's more than that. True devotion to God is obedience that comes from spirit-transformed desires. That is, devotion to the Lord is marked by joy and delight in Him. Being in Christ leads the believer to actually want to have their life conformed to his word. Why? Because that actually produces delight in them. Living according to the word of God actually makes me happy. When I delight in the Lord, it reorients how I think and how I act in every area of life. Even the most mundane. We, we know that it's easy to convince ourselves that devotion to God is just reading our Bibles, it's praying, it's attending church services. As long as I go check, 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 then I have shown that I am devoted to the Lord. And those are good things. Those are right things to do. Those who are devoted to the Lord are going to do those things. But the question is, are you doing that because you delight in him, that through them he might continue to increase your delight in him? Do you study the word? Do you hear it preach? Do you sing songs that are doctrinally rich, and does that increase your desire to see your life shaped by the standards and the values of his kingdom? The Psalm says, "clean hands and impure hearts." These are motivations that are Godward in their orientation. Producing words and deeds consistent with his holy character. And there is no part of our lives that this doesn't touch. But let me ask what happens when you walk out those doors or when you put the scriptures down? This must come to bear in every area of our life. For example, let's think about work. We delight to work. Because the Lord has said not to be idle. We submit to our bosses, whether they're nice or whether they're mean, because we know that the Lord has put them over us. We work diligently at the jobs we have, not stealing time from our employer, even when the task is boring, because the Lord says, do not steal. We treat our coworkers with kindness and gentleness, imitating who Christ is, that he is gentle and kind with me. It's the product of delight in the Word of God. Do you delight to the Word of God conform your work life? About family life, do you strive to show your spouse and kids patience as the Lord is patient with you? Do you fold the laundry and put away the dishes, not grumbling and complaining because someone else didn't do it, but glad because it's a way that you can serve others? Wives, do you gladly submit to your husband as the church does to Christ? Husbands, do you love and serve your wives? Do you seek to lead her and your children if you have them to the Lord? Do you seek to model the patience, kindness, and gentleness of Jesus before them? Do you seek their good above your own ambitions and desires, as Christ himself loved and served his bride the church. This comes to bear on our social media presence. Are your posts marked by confidence in the Lord or by fear? Are they marked by self-control or by angry outbursts? This comes to bear on how we think and talk about others. Are your thoughts born out of jealousy or joy at the joy of others? Do your words soak division Or do they promote peace? But I want you to notice what I didn't say. I didn't define devotion as having perfectly brought one's life under the authority of his word. I said, is bringing. We all have sin that needs dealing with. The question is, do you recognize it? And if you do, what are you doing about it? Are you hiding sin? Or are you confessing it and asking others to bear that burden with you? Are you just trying to work hard and do better? Or are you throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ? Do you plead with Him in your help in time of need? The devotion that I'm talking about isn't a matter of perfection. It's recognizing... That God is perfect. That He alone is worthy of worship. And diligently seeking to grow into who He has declared me to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Your gentleness and Your grace and Your patience towards us. We who are stubborn, foolish, who try so hard to clean ourselves up that we might present ourselves to you on the basis of our own works, pleasing in your sight. We thank you for your mercy and your grace that you show to us in Christ, that you declare us righteous by grace through faith in him. We thank you, Lord, because you've shown us mercy we don't deserve. And Lord, I pray that from your word you would increase in us delight in you, that you would increase in us desire to live for you and your glory alone, that we would long to see every part of our lives conformed to your word because we see you alone as worthy of worship. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.